Your Most Avid Reader by Bibi Berkey. Dear Monica, I'm afraid I've jumped a bit. Sorry, I couldn't resist it. You see, I had such a clear story in my mind that I needed to slap it down at once. Yes, yes, I can see why you think Nathan should die. But can I bring myself to do it? And anyway, how? Should he just give up and go and fight abroad, perhaps in the Americas, his poor restless body dissolving into the soil of a foreign land? That's all for later. In the meantime, the Hesiod women, led by Suzanne, have been rescued and taken in by the Radiant Wanderers. The Wanderers are already controversial and in permanent battle with the church authorities. Now they're about to court even more disapproval from the local population for taking in these strangers. They set about depicting their guests as heroines, hauling them up before the congregation as messengers from God, encouraging all women to strive for domestic and political power. They take it upon themselves to teach the Hesiods English and allow them to build their strange stilt houses on land belonging to their church. But even they are a little disconcerted by rumours that the Hesiots are brazenly sleeping with the local men, whether those men are married or not. For their part, the Hesiot women simply chat to each other during the church services. The congregations are made up of bored wives of local gentry who drag after them their poor protesting children. Mrs Anne Hadley of the Hindworld Estate, remember her? takes her religion very seriously indeed, and there's no question her son and three daughters should not attend the meetings. The Reverend Emily Harrington and Mrs Anne Hadley, two powerful and formidable women, you just know they're capable of wreaking havoc in the lives of others. Now, read on. The Women in the Woods, Chapter 7 Thou art strong, I, thou art. Do not believe them when they tell thee thou art weak, the weaker vessel. For thou art strong, the Lord made thee strong. Thou must bear children, bear illness, bear with the afflictions of imposed inferiority. That is what makes thee strong. Who dost thou need? Husbands? Nay. Children? Nay, for they are the ones with need. They are the ones who crave thee, and in turn thou cravest the Lord, the only man thou shalt ever truly crave. For we, we women, are the nearest to the Lord. We women can love the Lord. We women can understand the Lord. We are chosen by him to lead by his example. We have inherited his message and we will take it to the menfolk and to the children and it will come from us. I bid thee, call out to him with me. We hear you, Lord. And with that, the Reverend Emily Harrington slumped to the floor, her pale blue skirts billowing beneath her as she fell the church resounding with the terrible thud of her forehead hitting the floor. Her deaconesses rushed to her aid. But even as she lay there face down on the raw wooden planks, 
she stuck out a rigid arm to ward them off, to leave her be and let her recover. Inspired and yet a little nervous, the ladies of the congregation murmured and fanned themselves all the more furiously. Soon, convinced of their leader's physical well-being, they began to mumble amongst themselves that, aye, truth be told, they were the strong ones. They did have natural leadership about them, and they were indeed misunderstood. The murmuring grew in volume until the ladies' objections to the mainstream became an outcry. And little Miss Anne Pikeman, 29 and with four children, the wife of a Wold's gentleman farmer, found herself moved to stand up and declaim for all the world to hear that she was a monarch, treated like a servant, and yet a monarch, sure enough. The ladies clapped and cheered. Dominic Hadley watched his mother out of the corner of his eye and saw that she nodded ever so slightly, and by that gave her tacit approval to these incendiary words. Dominic often found himself looking to his mother to gauge her response to the world. He rarely sought the same guidance from his father. What puzzled the boy was that although his father was deemed the head of the household, his mother was in real charge, not just of the house and the estate, but of his father as well. And then there was the myth that his father was the learned one of the family, the scholar, the man of letters. To Dominic it was plain that his mother could outwit their father on any given subject. While she'd not been exposed to the same education as her husband, her logic easily eclipsed his. To Dominic's mind, this was a far greater cleverness than quoting Catalis. The only trouble with his mother, as far as her son was concerned, was that she was a little frightening and too hard to fathom at times. It was probably the way it was with such clever people. And his older sisters, Charlotte and Amelia, showed every sign of having inherited their mother's superior brain and attitude. Only he and his little sister Fanny showed any resemblance to their gentler, more spineless father. Dominic's father was not convinced by his wife's recent discovery of a new church, which was widely supported by the wives of local gentlemen farmers. He thought the whole thing a foolish enterprise, a fad, and he begged his wife not to expose their children to the radiant wanderers. She listened to all his misgivings and then promptly ignored them. Why, John, the ladies of the radiant wanderer church do keep my spirits up when we are away from town. I fear that my soul will wither in this bleakness. Why would you spoil this innocent pleasure of mine? Spoil your pleasure, my dear? It exclaimed. Well, I'd never do that, but must you take our children? I must, she had said. And that had been that. Mrs Hadley had been there, standing beside the farm manager, Nathan Gentle, when the Hesiot women had been turfed out of Fair Spinney and off the whole estate. 
she'd been impressed by the dignity of the women and their imperviousness to male authority. It seemed to her that these odd creatures could serve a purpose, could in some way be useful to her. Dominic had stood beside his mother and had watched the fascinating parade. The women had tried to carry the stripped branches with them, but the men from the Hadley estate pulled them roughly out of their hands. The Hesiots never argued or flinched, but remained upright and silent and merely moved on. What struck Dominic as the group emerged into the open was that the few men and boy children among them had disappeared. Their apparent leader, the woman he had spied sunning herself in the clearing, took her place at the front. Walking beside her was the girl who had caught him by the hair and known his name. The two swayed casually on, deep in conversation, several children gripping at their skirts to keep up with them. Oh, where shall they go? cried out Mrs Hadley at once, as though seeing them exposed on the open land had pulled at her conscience. Nathan, come with me. See if you can get through to them. If we can't house them, then the wanderers shall. The Reverend Mrs Harrington wore no wig, didn't powder her hair, she had no lace about her, no finery at all. Her lavish brown curls fell about her shoulders and her red cheeks glowed magnificently with exertion and passion. There was nobody like her in that bare, wood-floored church. Yet there was a good thirty souls in her congregation who ached to be just like her, to speak and think like her but most of all to care nothing for property as confidently as she did. Suddenly her voice was calm again. We will wander the earth forever, for this is our calling, and we will travel towards radiance, for to travel the right way is already half the journey. Be sure to remember thy strength, my women of radiance. It has been given to you by God, and God will be saddened if you squander it. Go out and revel in it. And with that, thirty sets of adult hands clapped frantically, while countless little hands lay folded on laps and young eyes looked towards the oak doors of the church, yearning for them to be opened and to release them. Barely three miles away from all the clapping and heaving in the church house, another hot-headed audience was feeling just as moved and aggrieved. This crowd was led by none other than Nicholas Rouse, young Dominic Hadley's tutor, his audience was made up of working and workless poor. These were the people who had once farmed the common land with a degree of contentment, but had been surprised to see it disappearing from under their feet. Their confusion had grown into animosity as they realised who and what they had become. Vassals. The 
articulate young gentleman who worked for Master Hadley was incensed on their behalf, and adept at fanning the flames of their anger. Rouse had plenty of fire of his own. The day after Dominic had run from his classroom, the tutor had been summoned before his employee's study, and while Mr Hadley had shuffled and mumbled inarticulately, his wife cut through the fog of indecision and informed the tutor that he should start seeking a new position. Rouse hadn't waited to be insulted, but left at once and taken lodgings in Louth. From there he planned his return to the capital, but in the meantime he stifled his humiliation by joining with other detractors of the ruling classes. He would go nowhere until he had made the Hadleys sorry for the high-handed way in which they'd treated him. Change was coming, and he was determined that, for the Hadleys, it should be catastrophic. Hilary was played by Rebecca Charles. The male narrator was Mark Lingwood. Your Most Avid Reader was written by Bibi Berkey with sound editing by Mark Lingwood. It was made by Tempest Productions and brought to you with the kind support of Rattlesnake Books. An established seller of books, maps, ephemera, art and curiosities, Rattlesnake Books can be found on Instagram, Etsy, Abe Books and Biblio. Thank you.